Abby. Katie. My name is Nathan Whitmire. My name is Lincoln. We went to a lot of churches in the area and none of them really felt right. And when we came to community, it just felt natural. We started small groups um, and we, we keep them going now. Some of the things I like about church are my class, singing songs, and... The Gaga Pit? Yeah, the Gaga Pit. It's fun. Working at the nursery, it's kind of fun. And then in Sunday school, it's fun too. And I like when we sing songs. I like singing songs in my class and, and playing and, and making stuff. Uh, I think community right now to me is, it, it has become a family. Um, we have so many relationships that we've formed over the years. Coming to church is not just to come and sit. It's it's where we come and refuel and to have the pastors that we do now and the leadership that we do and the preaching from the word and really trying to challenge us and convict us to to live in a godly way is it's been awesome. It feels like awesome that we get to learn more about God. Our family has been through so many highs and lows. And um, if we weren't a part of church, then we, we would have a hard time making it through those, um, those really lows, yeah, the hard times, and then really celebrating the good stuff. Like we're all of whole family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being youth group leaders, there was definitely people who, kids, that inspired us. I remember going home and being like, gosh, I want to be just like those kids. Just seeing those small miracles when I was sick, how many people just came to our rescue. And in our other lowest moments, there was no judgment. It was, what do we? <laughs> in our lowest moments, um, we, we couldn't have asked for any more. These guys, they don't always understand what's going on in church, but they're listening. And you know it, because Trent makes them laugh, making silly voices, yeah. making silly faces, right? It's like, oh! <laughs> um, without, without these people, um, we would, I don't know, what we, where would we be? I just pray that our, as our church grows, that we can continue to build those relationships with the new people that come in, build the relationships with the community, with surrounding churches uh, and missionaries across the world and across this country. There's so much vision here and so much good stuff that um, I'm so thankful to be a part of it. And so um, as we look forward, I think missions is something that is important to our family. And um, I'd love to just really focus on that as families. Some of the things I would like is Sunday school. That dumb singing. And when what? Uh, and when uh, I want to part when they get baptized. It's funny. Watching you. <laughs> I lost my bookmark. Give me a sec. There it is.
Um, that song, uh, are the Whirlies here? Wasn't that at your brother's funeral? I had this hope. Oh, um, Kurt Band, way to go on that one. Um, hard to hear. I've got a friend, two friends, actually three. Um, so I'm just going to pray so I can try to focus on the message. But uh, my friend Kurt Brink, his wife Michelle, and their 13-year-old son Carter, uh, they're in the hospital right now. Carter had a seizure earlier in the week. He had a, a, a bleed in his brain, and he had a... Um, blood clot the size of the surgeon's fist. They had to take out a piece of his skull and he's been up and down all week. And this morning it was, uh, there's nothing, they've gone as far as the medical can go. So um, I just, would you join me in praying for them? He's 13 year old boy. He was playing on Tuesday and now he's, he's barring God's intervention. It doesn't look good at all. So, and I've known, I've known Kurt and Michelle since they were, since 1991. And I baptized all five of their children, and so I've known Carter since he was in utero, and it was a troubled pregnancy because he's a twin. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we have this hope, and you tell us to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because you, the one who promised, you're faithful. Lord, Kurt and Michelle are reaching out this morning, and they're just asking for hope. So we pray, Lord, for hope for them. And if they lose hope, have them hold, give them someone to hold on to that has it. And Lord, we pray for Carter, that you heal him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the one who calls, you say, Talitha Kum to a little girl, and she comes back. And he's not gone yet, but Lord, tell him to arise restore him. And Lord, give me the ability to stay focused this morning to communicate your love to your people and your call for your people to love others. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Um, we're in our core value series. We're ending it. Uh, we've been through, we've talked about empowerment, authenticity, reproduction, transformation, Faith is a journey, and today it's less self. Now, I want you to know that this message is planned to feel familiar. Every passage used, at least read from the front, is very familiar. The, there's nothing I'm going to tell you that you don't already know. But I'm asking you to join me in hearing these things and considering these things again for the first time. Because sometimes we get so familiar with things that they lose their potency, they lose their meaning. We're all so familiar with the Christmas story, but we lose sometimes the fact that that is the most remarkable moment in human history. Not that a baby was born, that is miraculous, but that God came to us. So some things, I mean, there's a reason things become cliche. They become cliche because they're so used, they're so meaningful for a while that then they become this, you know, the, the, everyone knows about the Good Samaritan, but very few of us know about the Good Samaritan. That's what we're talking about all next week in Vacation Bible School. Um, these passages, you, they will all feel familiar. I'll do my best to read them in a, in a way that's not love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. I'll try my best to read it like Paul meant it. But please listen chew on this. I hope that you're uncomfortable today and you leave here knowing that God loves you just the way you are, but he does not want to leave you that way.
less self. We believe that we are to look not only to our own needs, but also to the needs of others. Our leadership, our ministries, our missions, and even our people will grow more and more into the people God wants them to be, wants us to be, by continually looking for how we might prefer the other over ourselves. We believe that if our church and our people are defined by showing preference to other churches, to other ministries, and to other people, God will be glorified, and our ultimate, ultimate goal is to give glory to God. This is the love if you had to define what, what's, what's different about the love of Christ versus other religious re- rulers or religious leaders or, or founders of faiths, the, the one thing you can say is that God, in the person of Christ, decided that what is best for Jesus isn't what's best for us. So it would be better if he came and everyone just bent their knee and worshiped him and everything, everything's restored to shalom. But, but he knew it was broken and he came anyway. And when he came, he came to give himself for us. So he did not consider his own needs above ours. So you and I have an eternal address that is not going to be suffering, but going to be glory because God chose us over even his own, and I don't want to say his own dignity, but God made some promises to us and we made some promises to him and we broke them. He has every right in the world to get out, every right in the universe to get out, and he chose not to. So here are these words that are very familiar. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort, from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then this isn't on the screen, but it says, the next word is, and we'll get to the latter part of this in a minute, but your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. How are we doing on that? Your attitude the same as that of Christ Jesus? Because it said, if you have any connection with God whatsoever, if you have any sense of tenderness or compassion in your heart, if you have any idea that God is who God is and you've received for yourself the gracious gift that he offered to you in your baptism... then all we have, the only thing he asks, is for us to do toward others what God has done toward us. Now, this goes way back. The greatest commandment, the Shema that, that Patrick uh, said in Hebrew the other day, the, the, original, the original interaction between God and his people. Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Even the Ten Commandments are set up just that way. The first three, us and God. The fourth, us and creation and our own rest. Everything else, us and other people. So it's vertical and it's horizontal. God, from everything he says, somehow, some way points toward love God with everything you have, love others. So how are we doing? How are we doing on not being selfish? but being selfless. Consider someone else's needs over your own. Honestly, I'm not asking you to raise your hand or or to say it, but 
I know I'm not doing very good at it. I don't really want God to want me to be like him. I want God to save me and fix me and then let me go about my business. But that's not what he tells us. Here's another passage, very, very familiar. It's been in almost every wedding ever. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames as if a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy. Doesn't boast. It's not proud. Love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. The next three words in the next verse are love never fails. But sometimes we do. I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to dissect this just a little bit. I want you to look back. I hope these guys remember from the last service. I asked them to keep that stuff up on the screen. But if you guys could bring verse 4 up there. I'm going to read them again. I'll be a little bit faster. I want you to ask yourself this question. Which of these things? So we love this at weddings, right? Oh, of course, love is patience. Kind of doesn't have any. Oh. And when, my, when Lynn walked down the aisle, it was. You know what it's like, right? In, in that, she used to call it, when she would, if we'd hold hands or something, she'd get that little surge. She called it boy stomach, you know. That, and, and that's what you think. You think love is all about that. <laughs> but ask yourself which one of these has to do with what you feel. Love is patient. Now, you're not patient just because you feel patient. It actually doesn't require any patience if you feel patient. Love is kind. Again, if you, if you feel kind, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not hard to do. But if you don't feel it and you behave as if you did, it doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no... How are we doing on this one? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Which one... Tell me, always protects. What does that have to do with emotion? Trust. What does that have to do with emotion? Hope. What does that have to do? Really, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. It's when you don't have something that makes any sense. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. Faith is required when you don't feel it. The only ones in here that have anything to do with how we feel rejoices with the truth. All the rest have to do with how we behave. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to expose myself a little bit here. Not literally. <laughs> I don't even like seeing that. I'm going to tell you, I, I don't like this passage. 
And I don't like the other one where they consider, you know, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. I love it because it's God's word to us, but honestly, it's hard. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, keeps no record of wrongs. It's not self-seeking. This week, yesterday, I was mowing my lawn. Earlier this week, Lynn and I were driving down the road. And we have a neighbor across the street, a couple houses down. And single mom, three kids. Lawn is dead. Not only dead, but it's like a hay field. It's, and I'm like, I tried to say it the nice way, but inside what was going on, I said, I wonder if someone needs, if she needs someone to mow her lawn. But inside, I'm like, I wish she'd get out there more. It's not that hard. You just kind of, it takes about half an hour. You got three boys. They can mow the lawn. And the front yard was kind of, I mean, it is brown, brown. I mean, dead hay field kind of lawn. And I'm really building myself up here to look awful. The front yard was mowed, but the side yard wasn't. So the side yard's hay, the rest of it. And I mowed my lawn yesterday, and I've got, you know, I, I, should, I shouldn't have one because I need the steps, but I have a little riding mower, and, and I'm mowing. I'm just getting done. It's not, it's still kind of hot. I'm already sweaty. I, I'll go over and mow that side yard just so it looks a little better. Because, you know, I'm not a lawn head, but I'm close. And the, one neighbor, green grass, green grass, you can tell which lawn's hers. And I drive over there, and it fills up my bagger really quick because it's really long, and it's hay, and it doesn't kind of clump together. And I go down the side yard, and I get to the back, and there's that mower in the backyard, dead as a door. You, know, you can tell it's broken. Something's wrong with it. So suddenly I get this fine, fine self-revelation, like, who is my neighbor? She's literally my neighbor. And I have this attitude in my head, and she's not living up to my expectations for her. And not only that, she doesn't know what my expectations are for her. And not only that, but she's not accountable to me. And I get in her, she can't afford, I don't believe, to fix her mower. And I'm driving by judging her, going, neighborhood, I'm <laughs> Who do I think I am? I used to hate it in our old neighborhood when the, there was this guy that had, he put a garden in it. He's on a corner lot. He put a garden in there and the neighborhood association sent him a certified letter to get that garden out. Knock on his door. And then I go and don't knock on the door. We know this person. We know the children. We help them find their dog when it gets away. But I looked at her lawn and went, how hard is it? What kind of a person am I? So how you doing? Do you grumble when God wants you to be faithful? Driving down M6, there's a guy on the side of the road with the car's on the side of the road and go up a little further and it's just before Byron Center and uh, Car's broken down. I see this guy walking. He's about a mile from the exit. I'm like, man, I should help him. So I pull over and take him. But in, inside, I'm going, it's interrupting my fishing time. Because that's what's most important, right? It's 80 degrees. I'm in an air-conditioned vehicle about to go out on my boat and go play. And this person's walking because they ran out of gas. Now, I'm telling you the truth about the internal dialogue because I'm hoping and hoping not that some of that internal dialogue goes on inside of you too. 
Because the love of God is this. You over him. You first. At all costs, your needs being met over his. Let me give you a story. It's really old. It's probably 25, 30 years old. 12-year-old boy's got leukemia. And it's bad. I mean, so bad that, and this is before treatment of, of, of um, lymphoma and leukemia are way better than they used to be. But his, his leukemia was so bad and so acute and that you, if you touched his skin, it, it felt like it burned to him. And they've, they've done everything they could do 25, 30 years ago. And they finally got to the point where they realized that the only way he's got a shot is a bone marrow transplant. And they have the parties where they get people to come in and they're raising money and they, and they have people kind of sign their cards and they prick their finger and they test them to see everyone trying to get people registered for, for bone marrow donation. And yes, some other people were, the other people that signed up because of this, they were matched with other people. But this kid, this 12-year-old kid, he's got no hope. And they finally found one person that connected that it would be, that it was a compatible bone marrow and it was his six-year-old brother. And the parents have this awful, awkward, weird conversation with their six-year-old son because their 12-year-old son's about to die. And they come to him and they sit him down in the best way they can with a six-year-old. That's Brody's age, right? Six. Six-year-old boy sitting at the dinner table with his parents and dad takes the lead and he basically says, look, I know this is hard to understand, but you know your brother's sick. Yeah. And you know he's really sick, that there's a possibility that he won't live. Yeah. Well, there's this thing that they think they can do that gives them his best shot of not only living, but being all better. You could have your big brother back. He's gonna, they're going to make him really sicker. What? They're going to make him sicker. Then they're going to put something in him. And then he'll still be sick for a while, but over six or eight weeks, if it's going to work, he's going to start getting better. Well, what, 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 Dad? It's called bone marrow. And the only person in the world that we know of that can help your brother is you. Okay. Well, here's what it means though. It's going to be painful. We would, they, they, they make you feel kind of sleepy and then they put a needle in your hip and they drive it into your bone. They pull something out of it and then they, re, they, they make that reproduce it and then they put it inside of, of your brother. And if, if it works, he's going to be okay. So we know this is hard and we know this is to be painful, but it's so the decision's short. A six-year-old boy, they give him that kind of a decision. And he goes up to his room and he comes back down a couple of times with clarifying comments and clarifying questions, just like a six-year-old would do. And he finally said, okay, I'll do it. And a couple of days later, they took him in and they doped him up just, just enough to, to make him sleepy, asking a lot of questions. And they put that large bore needle into his hip and they take out some of his bone marrow and they do what they got to do. And as he's coming out of the haze of anesthesia, dad looks at him, he's leaning over his face and he says, I'm so proud of you. You did such a great job. And the boy looks up at his dad and he goes, thanks, dad. When do I die? Think about that from a six-year-old's perspective. He, ha he needs something that's in me. If they, put, if they take it out of me and they put it in him, he's going to live. So if they take it out of me and put it in him, I'm going to die. And he did it anyway. Now, we know that bone marrow, having harvesting bone marrow from me doesn't, doesn't kill me, but it might help you. But he didn't, and he did it anyway. That's instinct. That's love. That's caring about the other, even at the sake of yourself. 
And he asks his dad, that's the first time his dad understood what it meant to the little boy. When do I die? Can you imagine the pride and the horror that you would feel as a father? When you realize that you didn't explain to your son that if you help your brother, you're going to be okay. It's just going to hurt for a while. But the pride in thinking that that little boy was willing to sacrifice his life for his brother? Are we people, are you a person who with full knowledge of what it might cost you, you're still willing to help someone else? Because that is the love of God. Son, will you go to them? Yes, Abba. It's going to be painful. It's going to be awful. They're going to beat you up, and they're going to kill you. I'll go. And when that son asked that father, when do I die? The father says, right now. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabiktani. It is finished. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, I know you're tracking. I know this is all familiar. But let's just marry it for a second. I pray to God that he will give me the kind of love that he has and that it will be instinctive like that little boy in the story. Because right now, I grumble inside. And ask yourself, when God, when God says, I want you to be inconvenienced, I want you to be, it might, be, it might cost you something, but I want you to do right by someone else. Don't you sometimes go, come on, I did it last time. Let someone else call 911. Let someone else stop and, 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 and help this man who's bleeding on the side of the road. But see, that whole story that we're going to talk about all next week and that will be the topic of the, the, the passage for the message next week, it's, it's people, religious people going, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, so then who is my neighbor? And Jesus said there, were, there was a man left for dead on the side of the road. Bandits had taken him, mugged him, and put him over. And, and a priest came by, and he stepped over him, kept on going. Levite, he came by. He, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan came by, and, and he tended to his wounds, and he got him to an inn, and he left money for the innkeeper and said, you take care of him, and if, if, if there's more money needed, I'll come back, and I'll, I'll settle up with you. And then Jesus turns to those religious people who know what's right and says, which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who had been beaten up. The third one. They can't even say Samaritan because he's the enemy. 
Sometimes God calls us to do what's easy, but it's almost never meaningful. But he often calls us to do what's difficult. And I got to ask you, do you grumble? I did it last time. Because you know what? The love of God and the works he calls us to, he's prepared good works in advance for us to do. And you know what? It's never done. Neither is laundry. Neither are the dishes. As long as you're living, you're going to have laundry. Now, it feels good when, it gets, when they get clean, you put them on. I hate, actually, I hate ironing really bad. Laundry, okay, but you're folding socks, underwear. You, I don't want to do it again, but if I don't, you know. You might not want to be good next time. You might not want to be selfless next time. But if you're not, you know. God asks one thing. Treat others the way I treated you. And folks, as a church, I've been around here four and a half years, and I want you to know, this is the God honest truth. My wife can bear witness. When people ask me, how's it going? It's the best four and a half years of my adult life. When it was four years, I said four years. When it was three and a half, I said three and a half. When it was three... But it's been, it's been amazing. You're wonderful people. In a couple of months, $50,000 has come up for Mission India, and none of you will ever meet all of the people that are blessed because of that. $50,000 in a couple of months to bless people you don't know. Awesome. We'll probably have 6000 by the end of the week to take care of this, this high school that, that Rivers of Mercy needs to build. Awesome. We have people all around the world that you have supported. We have Chris Peters right here right now from Grand Valley State. We, in the conference we hosted this week, the band from, from their ministry was here. Unbelievable. You've done great work. Well done. Good and faithful service. There will be, I was amazed this weekend to see how many volunteers there are for VBS and how many more there will be this week. There'll be four to 600 children here hearing some for the very first time about the love that God has for them and that he was willing to give himself for them. Awesome. Way to go. But you're not done. And until you're in glory, you won't be done. God's not done with you yet. He's not done with this church yet. And he's not done with the church universal yet. And the only hope this world has is a God that says, you're more important. I have a son and a daughter. I'm a dad. I have a son-in-law. I'm a pretty good guy, even though it doesn't look like it because I've been a jerk to my neighbor. <laughs> but as it stands right now, and I hope to, Lord, I would not sacrifice them for anyone. I would die before I would sacrifice them for anyone. But God says, for me, my son will die instead of you. And he doesn't ask us to sacrifice our children. He does ask us to sacrifice our will, our time, our resources. Not because you have to, but because you get to share with someone else how great your God is. So here's the question to end with. Simple. Do you have, because I do, a grumbling spirit?
When God asks you to do something next, to show preference, to consider someone else's needs over yours, to consider someone else better than you, do you have that little, like, 